sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed them all. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and they ex, uh, exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so the, their fathers did to the false prophets. And then we all say together in your worship guides. Forever and ever. Go ahead and grab a seat. So this is Luke chapter 6, of course, and we are going to be talking uh, at length about the, specifically the Beatitudes that are found there, uh, starting in verse 20 and following. Uh, this entire passage is about something that's counterintuitive. You may not know that phrase or you may be very comfortable with what things that are counterintuitive, but these are the things that defy logic. Things that you look to be true on the surface, but actu in actuality, they are not at all. So for instance, let me blow your mind. If you have a headache, scientists tell us, right, or Google. Um, so scientists tell us that if you have a headache, one way to relieve that headache is to potentially turn upside down and to bring more pain onto your actual head to relieve your headache. So while you were up on your head looking silly, that there's blood that flows down into your head or up, yeah, down, no, down into your head and thus relieving the tension. So turning upside down, creating pain with your head will relieve your headache. Had no idea. I don't know this either, I cannot prove it. However, they tell us that if you are driving on ice, it is better for you to be driving over a frozen lake than on frozen asphalt. I don't know this, you're gonna to have to ask our friends from Buffalo because I've never driven on a frozen lake before, but it is less risky to drive on frozen water than frozen asphalt because of tension pressure or something I'm looking for, like affirmation. I can't true, oh, oh, the Michiganders, they're coming. Uh, but I think the, probably the easiest and the, the one that we would all identify with is backing up a trailer. Okay, so you have your truck and it is behind it is a trailer. And what do you have to do? You have to turn it right for it to go left. And then you have to turn it left for it to go right. I remember I was, it was about three weeks beyond our honeymoon. We were moving Nicole's stuff away from her house in Mississippi to Arkansas where we were living. And we had a trailer full of stuff. We met in Memphis. And now I was the inheritor of said trailer behind my vehicle. And I'd never backed anything. And for whatever reason, we were in a restaurant really close tight 
window. And I was like, Nicole, you, you know, I've never done this before. I, I don't know how to get out of the parking lot. And so I made sure that my mother-in-law, my father-in-law were long gone because I was not going to embarrass myself like this. To my embarrassment, they hid in the corner just waiting for some free entertainment. They knew what was about to happen. All that to say is I ended up in some poor restaurant's bushes and a tap on the window from my father-in-law who said, hey, do you want, need a little help? And I was like, please, please just get me out of here. And he says, whatever you do from, from Memphis to Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, just point this thing forward. Do not do anything. But So that's what's counterintuitive. Things that look like it should be one way is actually the opposite. And that's these examples are compelling uh, because it challenges our assumptions. It challenges our logic. It tells us that maybe you and I may be stuck in a rut and we think one way when, one, when we, we really should be thinking the other. And that's what Jesus is doing for us this morning. In this passage, he's coming against our assumptions and he's telling us to really examine our logic and say, not so fast. In the kingdom of God, there is something that is very, very different. So as we jump into Luke chapter six, know that well, what it, these words are very uh, similar to words that we find in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. And what we know is the Sermon on the Mount. So you may not know about the Sermon on the Mount, but this is one of Jesus, if not the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preaches. Well, here in Luke chapter six, we have very similar words, yet we have two very different documents. Where one is the Sermon on the Mount, Luke tells us that we are on a level place. So this is the Sermon on the Plain, they like to call this. So these are two very different ser sermons, even though that they're similar in a lot of ways. So for instance, uh, we know that in Matthew, Jesus actually goes up onto a mountain to do his teachings. Here in our passage, we see that he actually comes down from a mountain to a level place to do that. In Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is much lo longer, much larger, 107 verses in Matthew to only 32 verses here in Luke. The only reason I'm bringing this to your attention is you may look at this, these two passages, see the similarities and say this is the same sermon. But then if you do a little bit of investigating, you see some differences. And so you may in your heart start to doubt the Lord or doubt his words, but to bring some assurance that these are two separate sermons, that Jesus is an itinerant preacher. He's preaching all the time. He's got similar material and he's bringing it to different audiences and crowds for very different emphasis. Um, Luke tells us uh, that there are four blessings, four beatitudes, but then also four woes. In Matthew, there's only nine beatitudes. So we've got something similar, but it's not the exact same. So who's listening to this sermon? We know that Jesus is, I mean, he can attract a crowd, right? I'm, I mean, there's crowds just flock to him. We see three different people groups here. We see that there are a group of disciples, right? So that's good. We also know that there is crowds that have gathered around him. And then also we have this third group of people that are called the apostles, these newly ordained people that are outside of the discipleship uh, class and have now been moved to the apostles. The crowds are really important here because this is the crowds that get everybody's attention. You, we see in our context, we see that they're coming from Jerusalem and Judea. We also 
often we, also, we actually see that the seacoast is now invi- uh, involved. Tyre and Sidon, meaning that people from the beach are actually coming inland to hear these words of Jesus. But they're not only interested in the words of Jesus. They're also bringing their sick and their afflicted. We see people who are not just needing to be cured, but people who are demon-possessed that are actually coming to Jesus for help. To hear God's word, but also to be healed from him. These crowds are flocking to Jesus because he's the one that has all the answers, but also he has the power. We see in our passage that the power leaves Jesus in order to cure them. And who wouldn't want to be around Jesus? I've seen this clip of the Beatles when they leave uh, uh, the UK to come to America for the first time. And these crowds, mainly of high school and college age girls losing their minds, right? But there are these people that are flocking to this band only to see them or to touch them, to be impacted by them. This is similar to Jesus and these crowds. And yet, this sermon is not for the crowds in particular. They are there, they hear it, but there is a directive here that we need to understand. We know that both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain is for Jesus's followers. Not just people who want to hear good teaching, not just someone who needs cures, but to actually people who are following Jesus, who are disciples of him. And that's really interesting to figure out because this message is for church folks. These are, these are people who want to follow Jesus. And so he's bringing to us this morning four blessings and four woes. He's giving us something that we are favored in and also something that we should question or to understand that we need warnings. And so if you find yourself as a follower of Jesus this morning, as a disciple of Jesus, just know that this sermon particularly is for us. We know that in the first couple of chapters, the disciples have been, there's the challenge of follow me. And they've done that well. Well, starting in chapter six, we see Jesus upping the ante. It's more than just fellowship that he's looking after. He's actually looking to you and me to to hold on to this counterintuitive kingdom, this upside down kingdom for you and I to wrestle with. So what exactly are we wrestling with? These are called the Beatitudes in 20 through uh, 26. So let me just read them again. And so then Jesus lifts up his eyes on who? On the disciples, right? I don't have my teaching tool. Um, We got a little construction project going on here at Providence. Um, Also, the light show was awesome earlier. So we're in next week, there's going to be fog. Um. Back to the Bible. No more jokes. All right. So the Beatitudes. So he lifts up his eyes on his disciples, right? And he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He just says it. Just says it out loud. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now. The ones who are growling, your your, your stomach is growling now because you haven't eaten maybe for a couple of days for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you 
And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, it's then I want you to rejoice in that day and lift and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven for your fathers did to the prophets. This is counterintuitive. The, the people that are blessed, right? What does this mean? This, this idea of a beatitude or a blessed, what does that mean? It means to be favored with God, to have his face shine upon at you, for you to find favor with him full acceptance and grace and goodness. This isn't salvation. This is just an attitude of love and joy and care to be able to see you, to single you out, to say, you, oh favored one. This is what he does to Mary when he comes, pray Jesus. Blessed are you. And then we fill in the blanks. Who are the people? Who are the people groups? that are blessed in the kingdom of God. They're very different from what the world will say. We look at the house up on the hill and be like, they've got it going on, right? Or you look at the guy who's uh, just, you know, that, that is obviously well-fed and you're like, okay, they must be living great. You go to, you know, uh, uh, into a room and everybody is laughing and there's stitches and there's the party of a century. You're like, oh, that must be the definition of life. And what Jesus is saying, you're here because you want to hear my words. You're here because you have, you know, you voluntarily wanted to follow me. I want you to know that the standards of the world are not my standards. I didn't come just to add to your life. I've come to turn your life upside down. And so when you follow me, just know the fellowship is going to be different. You're going to be beside me and you're going to be in my, in my sphere. We're going to be companions. But where I'm going to lead you may look very different from what the Roman world and the Jewish world calls as success. First and foremost, I need you to be comfortable with this idea that you, disciples, blessed are you, favored are you, O disciples, who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you who are rejected. And now you and I get really, really uh, uncomfortable because I don't know how we define God's favor in our life, but we probably wouldn't add these four things, would we? You who are poor, you who are hungry, you who need the help of someone else, someone outside of you, that you, something you don't possess in order for your necessities to be given. These four groups of people are the ones that Jesus looks to his disciples. And these are the people that God says, blessed are you. So that's what blessed is. What does blessedness not mean? Because I'm uncomfortable and you're uncomfortable because you're looking at your life and you're like, I may or may not be poor or I may or may not be uh, hungry. We should not misrepresent what the Lord is saying here by mean, meaning that, that the mere fact of your poverty or the mere fact of your hunger absolutely 
brings an immediate claim of the Lord's blessing. That's a lot of words, so let me just say it again. That we cannot for a minute believe that just because you are poor or just because you are hungry that you get this immediate blessing from the Lord. That's not what he's saying. But what is he saying? Look in verse 22. The major difference between the Beatitudes in Matthew and the, and the Beatitudes here in Luke is that there is no condition. Blessed are you who hunger or who are hungry, and it, he just leaves it there. In Matthew, he says, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? In Luke, it says, blessed are you who are, are poor and just leaves it there at poverty. Matthew will spiritualize it a little bit, but blessed are you who are poor in spirit. There's no spiritualization. There's no clarification. There's no condition on these. It's just blessed are you who are poor and hungry or weep and who are rejected. And yet we do see a clarification. We do see a condition and it's in 22. On account, and I want you to underline this if you've got it in your scriptures. On account of the son of man, and there's an exclamation mark. On account of the son of man. When you are hungry for my sake, not just hungry in general, when you are brought to poverty for my sake, when you are weeping for my sake or rejected for the on account of the son of man, this is the main idea of the whole passage is in your condition. When you think that the Lord should bring you, like drowning you with blessings, what type of blessings do you want? Oftentimes the blessing that he brings us is counterintuitive to all human nature whatsoever. I've been broke twice in my life. Like completely broke, very little in the bank at all. One to go to seminary and one to plant Redstone Church. I'm not saying that to say, but like, but if I was broke because I gambled it all away, there's a difference. If I broke because I'm foolish, there's two different reasons. However, we look at our lives and those were some of the sweetest times in the world. Why? Because we are able to walk in faith and obey him fully and completely. There may be some of you in here that are living in palatial places and eating all that you want. And the Lord may one day tell you to push pause for the sake of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is telling his disciples is, are you ready? The follow me moment is over. And true discipleship, what it's going to take to truly worship me as Savior and Lord is to see this world totally upside down, fully and completely. These are not imperatives. Imperatives sound like this. Pray, go, do, bless, love. These are direct commands from Jesus. And we have plenty of those. These are not those commands. These are indicatives, meaning that the direct call to action to become poor or to become hungry is not the ideal here. Instead, if you end up poor because of Jesus, just know that God is shining his face on you. 
instead of the command to be hungry, when you find yourself hungry for the sake of Jesus, just know that Jesus, God is so very glad. And that's a very different worldview because what we think is that God only blesses us with bounty, with abundance. But in this passage, in this moment, what the disciples needed to hear is, what if it was all taken away? What if I don't do for you what I've done for those crowds? I've healed them. My power has gone out for them. What if I lead you and you feel all alone and hungry and poor? Will you reject me then? Are you here for my stuff or are you here for me? This is a strong call of discipleship. There's two different worlds, a world in which looks palatial, looks blessed, and one that may look a little meager. And yet this is where God smiles. And so for you and me, do you and I need to be in a continual state of suffering to be loved by God? The answer is no, it's okay. If you, do you have to be experiencing terrible loss or discouragement at all times to, to follow Jesus? The answer is no. However, you need to know that when God leads you, he may lead you to tough decisions that really rub against your comfort. Of all the idols in the West, comfort is probably number one. We want to avoid all discomfort. Here in these first four Beatus is telling us, blessed are you who are discomfortable in your poverty and in your hunger and your weeping and when you are rejected. It's counterintuitive. We would never have written these words. These are Holy Spirit words for your heart and mine. And it gets worse. It actually gets stronger when you consider the woes. Let me read verse 24 and following. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You've received your comfort. Blessed or woe to you who are full now, for you shall uh, be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, so, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So four woes that are exactly in parallel with the first four beatitudes. They sync up immediately. Blessed are you who are poor, woe to you who are rich. Blessed are you who are hungry, woe to you who are full. Blessed are you who weep, woe to you who are laugh. It is totally counterintuitive. A woe here is not damnation. A woe here is not hell. The woe here is simply what it is. It's a warning. A warning to disciples. Warning to those who are following after Jesus. You need to wake up and see where I'm going to take you. God may do these things for you. And you need to be very, very weary of them. So these woes are warnings. These are things that should never be taken lightly. These things should be fully cautionary. Is it wrong to be rich? Is it wrong to be full? Is it wrong to laugh? Is it wrong to be well-liked? No. 
However, if this is the heart of who you are, to do these things independently for God, he is telling you caution and a warning. I don't ride many horses. Right? But I do know that if I was on a horse right now, I would know one word. Whoa. Uh Uh-uh. Like, don't go that fast. Don't go that direction. Don't go over that cliff. Like, if I'm not in control, but if I say, whoa, I feel like he or she would have to like hear that and, and understand. This is what Jesus is saying. There is a cliff that riches bring. There is a wrong path of fullness and weeping. There's something that you need to be warned of if the sole purpose of your life is to be well thought of and well and highly spoken of. If this is what you're doing, be careful, be careful, be careful. This passage does not say that there's something inherently evil about being wealthy. We know that in the scriptures, Job was wealthy. He was well-fed. So was Abraham. So was Joseph of Arimathea. He owned his own tomb. So was Lydia, the church, you know, part of the church plant in Philippi. So there's nothing inherently evil about being wealthy. And yet there is a warning to those who are full and laughing and pursuing wealth. Tells us that your blessings are now. Look at the present tense. Who are hungry now. Who laugh now. Who are full now. The present tense is what Jesus is saying. You're clamoring and you're trying to put your whole life together so that you will be able to enjoy right here, right now. What if the future fulfillment, your future satisfaction is well, much better than what you're experiencing now? Fellowship of Jesus is about to change and the ingredients are about to change and Jesus is upping the ante to really challenge them to their true self, the core of who they are. So what do we do with a lesson like this? What do we do when we're a little bit confused, but we're also like tracking, what do we do? So here's just some lessons and some applications. Number one, you and I, our natural state is to seek out the things that Jesus is telling us not to seek out and to avoid the things that he's telling us bring blessing. You and I just didn't know that Jesus Christ is cutting against the grain. This is not the natural order. This is the supernatural order. That's why he's giving us the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in that. So just know that in our natural state, we will seek out the things that Jesus wants us to avoid. And then we will try to avoid the thing that Jesus wants to bless us with. Number two, just some lessons and some applications. True discipleship often leads us to saying no to ourselves. Saying no to food or no to money or no to laughing. And to be more inclined to weep and to give and to do without. To weep, to do without, to give. This is the muscle of new discipleship. And so these seasons of poverty, these seasons of weeping for the sake of the Son of Man. Number three is that God's favor, right, does not rest only on those who look like they have it all together. We look at people who have it all together and we just assume that God's favor is on them. 
Jesus is saying that maybe God's favor is on the destitute as well. In fact, this is another, um, another one of Luke's moments where he is valuing the outcast. He's valuing the people that were on the fringes and saying, no, you have a place here. In the crowds and of the disciples, if you're poor and hungry, where the entire society will push you away, guess what? Here in my kingdom, you have a place, not just a place, but a place at the table. And I'm going to speak to you any differently because I love you and I saved you. So God's favor often is to provide a place for people that we would push out to the outcast. Number four is that this counterintuitive is part of everyday life. I had lunch with Karen Trigg this week and she said, I rejoice in my cancer. Who can say that? But oftentimes, even in seasons of doubt, sickness and pain, that is the moment when Jesus speaks the most sweet or with the most clarity. And so maybe we are too quickly to move away from this, the discomfort that the Lord is trying to give to us. So just know that this counterintuitive reality is all around us. Number five, let us please put a large stake, a metal stake into prosperity gospel or prosperity theology. And that if God, if you are God's, and you are favored by God, he will bring you health, wealth, and no despair whatsoever. Jesus is telling us here in these beatitudes and these woes that that is not necessarily the truth. The Sermon on the Plain tells us that following Jesus may get costly fast. Luke 14 tells us that he who exalts himself will be humbled. Number six, true disciples. Speak God's words regardless of the consequences. We know here that the prophets of old, right, were dismissed, right, and the false prophets were propped up. Here, the disciples of Jesus, you're going to have to speak the truth no matter what the consequences are going to be. But wait a minute. What if I lose my job? Oh, wait a minute. What if I don't get that position? Oh, wait a minute. What if that cost me a friendship? true disciples, this next phase of discipleship, speaks God's words no matter what the consequences. And number seven, this list divides the world into two camps. Blessed are those who are in pain and woe to those who are doing just fine. God looks at the world very, very differently from us. And so in this passage, we learn that we will either be humbled here and blessed later, or we will be blessed here and humbled later. Let me say that again. In this text, we realize that we will be humbled here and then blessed later, or we will be blessed here and now and then be humbled later. We need to be able to endure temporary sorrows and we should never lift up temporary gains. The pleasures of this earth are great and good. Jesus brings the bigger party and the better wine. We understand that. But the pleasures are only temporary here and now compared to what Jesus is able to offer us fully and completely.
And so these four blessings and these four woes are for the church, for people who are following Jesus. And we know the disciples struggle with this all the way up until the very end. Remember on their way to Jerusalem, there was a little bit of a fistfight amongst the disciples. And they were trying to like jockey for position. Yeah, but Lord, give me this. Or hey, Lord, is it okay if I have that? Because the kingdom of God is about exaltation, meaning you're, you're gonna be king and then you're gonna need some princes and you're gonna need some like people to sit on your courts left and right. And I wanna be really, really close. The disciples up until the very end missed the point that what Jesus is doing is not necessarily trying to exalt our lives. Instead, it's to exalt Jesus's life and the way that this world was created. Some of the best stories on earth never start out with, hey, I had it all and I became awesome. Some of the best stories are that I had nothing. And through just a few events here and there, something happened so that I'm now standing in a very different place. The journey that Jesus is asking you to go on this morning is a very different journey. I love that we're sending our kids to college. I love that you're gonna get good jobs. You're gonna have great families and you're gonna build awesome houses. It's all fine and well and good, but that is not the end of our humanity. The places that will change the world are places of hope inside seasons of desperation, absolute peace in a season of discomfort and frustration and chaos. This season or this kingdom is upside down in every way. And for 2,000 years, we have the church of Jesus and the story of them walking, walking into broken places and walking into hurtful places just to bring grace and love and forgiveness. No wonderful house on a hill will ever do compared to that. And so in this series of realia, of food and drink, we once again pause to say, that food and drink can actually lead us astray because blessed are you who are hungry, but woe to you who are full. This morning, we want to challenge your stomachs into what is truly satisfying you. Luckily for us, we know where to turn. We get to turn to Jesus Christ. We actually get to turn to the table of Jesus. We have stations in the back and there will be a station up front in which we will actually be able to partake of the thing that will make us full. And that's the person and work of Jesus only. He's the only one that can satisfy you and me. So brothers and sisters, who wants to follow after Jesus? Caution. Who among you, who among us are willing to walk away from him when it gets hard. The table of remembrance is remembering that he did not turn away when it was hard. Instead, he continued to plot along, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. He knew that his blessedness was not going to be the way the world would define success at all. And so here we are 
taking of the bread and of the cup, we're continuing to remember that his blessedness came in the form of emptying for you and me. So do me a favor, go ahead and stand your feet. Let me pray for us and then we will come to the table together. So Lord Jesus, I pray that we look at the pleasures of this earth and we will think of them very skeptically this afternoon and in the week ahead. And God, that we will also look at your blessings and to say that maybe, just maybe, this entire life is for you and me to say yes to sacrifice and to be willing to extend and expend everything for your sake. God, we do that because that's what you did for us. You gave us the perfect example, giving your life of death, even death on the cross. And so this morning, we thank you for being obedient. We thank you for being persevering all the way to the end. Thank you that you loved us so much that the joy set before us that you endure the cross so that we can come to a table and rejoice in what you have done for us. I pray that we take these four blessings and that we take these four woes very seriously. Make us a new people. Give us an aha moment this morning. Give us the courage to obey you no matter what. So as we partake of this table, Lord, help us to rejoice in the one who is obedient for, and gave everything for us so that we truly will be able to rejoice later, that we can laugh and celebrate with you fully. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So there's two stations in the back. Um, so that is our self-serve. I'll be serving the one here up front. And so you are dismissed to take.